Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi and it's summertime. Oh my God, it's glorious. Finally, in the words of the old song, fish are jumping and the cotton is high. Well, obviously not. I live in Bermondsey. There's no jumping fish here. I've no idea what that means at all. Sort your life out, Gershwin. In this month's episode, our theme is another one of those topics with which Soho is synonymous. No, not super spreader drunken crowds, although many of the main players in this subject were often fairly drunk. I'm talking about art and specifically painting. In choosing a famous painter to talk about on the show, I was sport for choice. I could have gone all the way back to 1757 to talk about William Blake, but we talked about him in episode 15 of the Soho Bites spin-off show Mural Morsels a few months ago. In fact, there are several painters on the Spirit of Soho mural who have been or will be the subject of Mural Morsels episodes, including Canaletto, Joshua Reynolds, Angelica Kaufman and William Hogarth, all of whom lived or worked in the area. In the 20th century, we had figures like Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud, whose reputations and legacies still loom large. But I decided to go with a painter from an earlier part of the last century, the so-called King of Bohemia, Augustus John. He was very talented, very individual and very Soho. In the first half of the show, the writer and curator David Boyd Haycock joined me in a Soho pub to tell me about this painter with a self-confessed fishy reputation. And for the film chat, I'm joined by writer and broadcaster Mark Brissenden to talk about a little-known film from 1950 called Something in the City. It's a gentle comedy about a man who pretends to his family that he's off to the city every day to do something, but is actually going to Soho to paint canvases to sell on the street. And Richard Hearn, the star of Something in the City, has something in common with Augustus John, which is that they were both incredibly famous in their day, but are now largely forgotten by the general public. Hang around to the second half of the show to hear my chat with Mark about Something in the City, which took place in another Soho pub. It's almost like we're making up for lost time.
There's an urban myth about the painter Augustus John, which is that whenever he passed a small child in the street, he'd pat them on the head just in case he was their father. Such was his reputation for, ahem, putting it about a bit. Born into a well-to-do Victorian home, John experienced the tragic loss of his mother while still very young, but he showed early promise as an artist, as did his sister Gwen, and they both left their claustrophobic home life in their native Tenby for London in 1894 to enrol at the Slade School of Art. He was still a student when his reputation both as a great artist and a great bohemian became firmly established. Ignoring most social conventions of the day, he lived a long, unusual life, eventually passing away in 1961 at the age of 83. It's said that Augustus John once remarked to his fellow artist, also a Soho face, also from Tenby, Nina Hamnett, who was sometimes called the Queen of Bohemia, that we are the sort of people our fathers warned us against. David Boyd Haycock is a freelance lecturer, curator and writer who's in the final stages of writing a biography of Augustus John and he kindly agreed to come on the show. Because he lives in Oxford, I had assumed we'd be forced to meet online, but as luck would have it, David was visiting London for the day, so we were able to meet in person. But which Soho location would be appropriate to the subject of Augustus John? In the end, we decided to meet in the Leicester Arms on Glasshouse Street, as this is possibly the closest surviving location to a long-gone German beer hall in which John often enjoyed a drink and a sausage or two. David began with a spot of biographical background about Augustus John. Well, John was born in Tenby in Pembrokeshire, so southwest Wales, in 1871. Uh, his dad was Welsh, his mum was English. She died, though, when John was just five years old, and so that was like the sort of the benchmark disaster of his childhood. And then his dad, who was a, a solicitor, sort of abandoned his job and went to be a recluse really in a big house by the, by the sea in Tenby, stopped working and lived a very sort of strange Victorian uh, widowhood. There were four children of which famous sister is Gwen John, obviously the painter. Uh, yeah, they all lived in this uh, rather rec reclusive, very, very Victorian, very staid, traditional household. And, uh, yeah, it's very difficult for them. It doesn't sound like the kind of background that would produce this bohemian artist type. No. Two bohemian artists. Two bohemian artists, yeah. Well, John would say in his autobiography, I studied my dad very carefully, and everything that he was when I grew up, I would not be. So, <laughs> I hope uh, my kids do that as well. <laughs> yeah. So it's just kind of like, I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm going to be anything like my dad. I'm going to be the complete opposite of my father, and I'm just going to escape this kind of world. And... He came to London when he was 16 to study at the Slade School of Art. And oh, that's very young. I mean, there were even younger students. Some of them were sort of coming at 14 or 15. Uh, but yeah, 16 was young. His mother had liked to do watercolours, and him and Gwen just loved to paint and draw. And uh, they met a Royal Academician painter in Tenby, and he recommended the Slade. The Slade hadn't been going all that long. I mean, it was founded about the same year, or just about the same year that John was born. So it was only sort of 15, 16 years. But uh, it went through a sort of a bit of a revolution just when John arrived. A chap called Henry Tonks arrived at the same time as the drawing master. And uh, he sort of really sort of set them on the way to being this extraordinary set of generations of, of students. And the, the artists who come out of the Slade, John's peers include a set of really amazing artists like um, Ambrose McAvoy, William Orpen, his sister Gwen, 
uh, Percy Wyndham Lewis. So some really exciting artists. And then the ones that I've written about as well who came in the generation after, sort of people like Stanley Spencer, Mark Gertler, Richard Nevinson, David Bomberg, Dora Carrington, really sort of some of the most important 20th century, early 20th century British painters. And some, at some point during this time, this is one of those anecdotal things that uh, you might laugh at my, in, my, in my face. I read a couple of accounts that he banged his head on a rock and at that point he's, he had a sort of personality change and became, and that set him on the path between this bohemian sh inveterate shadow of women. Yeah, yeah, the, the, it's a famous story. Henry Tonks records it. And Henry Tonks is, he, he'd gone home for the summer holidays and he, he loved to swim and he dives into the, into the sea from a cliff top, basically, and the, the tide's up. Misjudged the yeah, depth of the looked, water. Yeah, misjudges the depth of the water. And Henry Tonks says, oh, he, he emerges like this genius, genius is the word Tonks uses. John admits that it happened. But he, he sort of poo-poos the idea that it sort of changed his personality. But there's a suggestion that he actually maybe already had a kind of a bit of a personality disorder going on, uh, which manifested it in this kind of reckless behaviour and just diving into, a, into the sea without looking at what he was doing, um, that this was the manifestation of, of a change in him that was already kind of latent. And this personality, from, going from this like really sort of shy polite 16, 17 year old into this really extravagant, outrageous, drinking, womanizing, getting arrested in the sort of streets around where we are here in Soho, and getting into all sorts of trouble and behaving just in an absolute outrageous manner. It's, it's such a cliched word, bohemian, but it's, it comes from the idea of gypsies, doesn't it? Or the Romani people coming yes, from that part of yes. the world and having a kind of alternative lifestyle. So, I mean, what was this bohemian lifestyle that he supposedly had? Well, I've got, I've got this really good quote from Arthur Ransom, the, the author who did Solos and Amazons later in life. When he was young, one of the first books he wrote was called Bohemia in London, 1907. And he, he was looking around for, like, what does, what does bohemian actually mean? And he's got this great, great list. Peregrinator, wanderer, rover, straggler, rambler bird of passage, vagrant, scattling, landloper, wastrel, loafer, tramp, vagabond, gypsy, emigrant, and peripatetic somnambulist. <laughs> so this There's is some a, great words in great, there. Yeah. I'm going to There's use a, them all it's a, great, it's a great list. And I, but I think it, all of them are about wandering. It's all about sort of being, being free. And I think it's like not having a home, not having some place you've always got to go back to, but always being, you know, at the door of the hat, being able to sort of just say, I'm, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to Paris. I'm going to just go out wherever wherever anything will take me. And not constrained by society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That buttoned up Victorian thing. Absolutely. I mean, and John, John sort of set the style for the sort of the English, British, bohemian of the early 20th century, sort of like discarding sort of all that sort of buttoned up, as you say, stiff way of dressing. And he gets off a you know, massive sort of gypsy hat, never wear a tie, never clean his shoes. Just wander around. Massive whatever. beard. Yeah, massive beard. He was a, yeah. he was a hipster, wasn't La he? Loud checked <laughs> suits and everything. Yeah. So we're sitting in a pub in Soho with all the technical difficulties that it, that causes, but we're here because this is, I think, the nearest place we could be in to one of his big haunts pre-First World War that you mentioned to me. Can you this sounds like a brilliant place. Yeah, it's the German Brasserie, which was an institution. They'd go in, him and William Orpen, who was over from Dublin, they, they, they'd go and they'd drink this fancy drink called lager. Ooh, uh, <laughs> coming exotic. in from, <laughs> from Germany. 
um, along with uh, eating sort of sauerkraut and whatever. Very German food. And what was it called, um, the old...? The Gambrinus Brasserie. The old Gambrinus Brasserie. Sadly, uh, as soon as the uh, First World War broke out, it was uh, sort of not the sort of place you were going to be yeah. frequenting. But he had a place, he opened a nightclub. This sounds really off the wall. Well, I say nightclub. What was this place on Greek Street? Well, this Some... is the this is the Crabtree Club, which he opens in 1914 with a with a, a couple of wealthy friends, and it's basically a place they can go to after the Cafe Royal closes at midnight. England was terrible for even before I think the First World War, terrible for sort of its licensing laws, and uh, so yeah, they wanted somewhere they could go. And there's there's been a, a a nightclub that had opened already, the uh, Cave of the Golden Calf. Uh, which Madame Strindberg, one of his lovers, had opened. Uh, so he, he'd fallen out with her. So he opens his own sort of drinking den, and it's upstairs in a, in a leather warehouse in, uh, yeah, in Greek Street. And um, a bit insalubrious, according to Paul Nash, it was a rather sort of... It sounds quite like sordid. Sort of from, I read a passage on your book. Yeah, yeah. So I, don't know, I don't know if it... But it certainly wasn't the sort of place that Paul Nash wanted to find himself. So if you do a quick Google search of Augustus John... Most of what comes up are his, his society portraits. So very well-known people, Tula Bankhead and uh, George Bernard Shaw, people yeah, like that. Yeah, T. E. Lawrence. Yeah. And, yeah. But when we were setting up the interview, you said that most of his, the work that you like, that you prefer of his, is before his society portrait stage. What was it like before he got into the, Because I think those portraits are amazing from what I've seen. It's the dynamism and the colour in, in it, the, the modernism. He's sort of like one of the first uh, British modernist painters. Are they, are they landscapes or group they're, they're, portraits? They're, or? A lot of them are landscapes. So he went, he went and lived in 1910 in the south of France and Provence and painted these beautiful, very fast-painted, just very strong colours, just, of, yeah, just of, the, of the sea, of his, of his family, his, um, his mistress, their children, uh, his children with his, with his wife. Uh, I mean, sadly, his, his wife had died in 1908 in, in Paris, and uh, he met Picasso that same year. And Picasso briefly was quite a sort of big influence on him in sort of breaking down what had been a very traditional sort of education of the Slade into becoming a more primitive, honest sort of painter. And I just find there's something about him sort of pre the First World War that is colourful, joyful, exciting, naive, bright escaping sort of very traditional Edwardian types of portraiture and landscape painting. I read a quote, a Henry Tonks quote, who said when he was still at Slade, when, when John was still at Slade, he said he was the best draftsman since Michelangelo. Yeah. Which, I mean, that seems, <laughs> that's quite a, <laughs> that's quite a big it? claim, yeah. So, I mean, he must have had something, he must have just had a natural, innate talent to... He didn't learn that at Slade, did he? He just well, was had something... It's, yeah, it's always difficult to say where that, that comes from in an artist. I mean, the Slade definitely helped, and Tonks's guidance helped, and endless life drawing just sat, sat in front of a male-female figure drawing and drawing. Um, but no, the, yeah, there was just a, a great flu, easy fluidity to him, a confidence that he had, and a sort of bravura style. Uh, he, he sort of... He was quite poor when he was at the Slade. His dad didn't really give him any money, him or Gwen. And he'd be sort of changing house, flat, wherever he was staying, sort of pretty regularly because he wasn't able to keep up with the rent. And as soon as he left one place, sort of students would raid his sort of rooms, sort of digging out all his sort of torn up, uh, torn up pictures to sort of keep them, preserve them. And it was just, yeah, it was just absolutely extraordinary what he could do. It was almost like too successful for his own good. There was that, that thing, yeah, that Tonks says, and John Singer Sargent says, there hadn't been drawing like that since the Renaissance in this country. And then he was just like this extraordinarily handsome man. Uh, 
virile, women falling, you know, at his feet. I mean, some people later were saying, oh, that John's great failing was he was just almost too beautiful. And he just had it sort of everything sort of he could he could draw beautifully he looked beautiful women threw themselves at him uh, he was selling his drawings for extraordinary sums of money from quite early on uh, and he had it terrible t- <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it's like george best isn't it you know? it is that's gonna say there was somebody in the back of my mind i thought it's not me that reminds me of but there is somebody um yeah george best is like that isn't he yeah yeah, yeah. and he sort of spends all his money on sort of uh, what was it women and drink and sort of wastes the rest well, of it song. yeah yeah, yeah it was. I saw an interview with John where he refers to his fishy reputation. So he was obviously aware of, of his kind of public image as this bohemian character. Was it something that he played on? Or? I think it was a sort of burden for him, to be honest. I mean, he would say that he was a very shy man. And his sister Gwen was extraordinarily shy, found it very difficult dealing with other people. And I think the whole family was naturally very introverted. But he gave this impression of being a very flamboyant, extravagant person he would say well I was just sort of hiding my sort of inner self it sort of sort of catches up in him in a way and he says sort of towards the end of his life I'm not a real person at all I'm just this legend and then the sort of the sense that he hadn't sort of met his potential being sort of named this genius early on he ought in a way to have been sort of a Gauguin or a Matisse someone who we, we remember today as this really significant early 20th century artist and He's really sort of increasingly forgotten. I mean, I hope. I, mean, I feel like he's actually coming, sort of coming out of the woodwork a bit again. But I mean, to, to, Virginia Woolf said in the 1920s that from about 1908 to 1914, it was the age of Augustus John. I mean, he was that that bigger figure. People sort of just see him sort of walking through, walking down the street. You know, they'd know who he was. I mean, he'd, he'd eventually he, Soho was an important part of London for him in his in that early part because he lived very close to the to the Slade in Fitzrovia. He had sort of digs around here in Soho and frequented the pubs and the... Slade's at UCL, isn't it? Yeah, it's part yeah. of UCL, yeah. yeah. The, the thing that first drew me to him was this quote I read. I, mean, I think it's half-joking. Every time he passed a small child in the street, he'd pat them on the head in case they were, he had fathered them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure that's just apocryphal and everything, but I don't know. I'm not sure who. But he did have a lot of legitimate children all over the place. He did. He had at least 14 children. He had five boys with his wife, and she died after giving birth to his fifth son with her. He'd already had two boys with his mistress, Dorelia. Dorelia would then become people call her his second wife, though he never actually married her. He'd have four children with her, Uh, and then at least four other children with four other women, um, and possibly more. I mean, there, I there is... Some, 86? Yeah, well, there's, there's this legend, yeah, that he had maybe 99 children, right. uh, which is because, I mean, someone said, well, he didn't have 100. Thank you to David Boyd Haycock for coming on Soho Bites. The release date of David's biography of Augustus John has not yet been finalised, but while you're waiting for it, you could do worse than read his book, a Crisis of Brilliance, which is about the generation of British artists who came just after Augustus John. And you can follow David's blog at davidboydhaycock.blogspot.com. All of these details can be found, of course, along with some other stuff, on the show notes for this episode at sohobitespodcast.com. Hold up. 
Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. There is undoubtedly a generational divide in this country. In fact, we talked a little bit about this in the last episode. But I'm not talking about differences in pop music or who voted for Brexit or about attitudes to gender identity issues. I'm talking about something much more profound. I'm talking about pastry. Mr. Pastry. Mr. Pastry was a comedy character created by the actor and comedian Richard Hearn, originally under a different name back in the 1930s. By the immediate post-war period, Mr. Pastry had become an absolutely huge star. He was all over the radio and the very early incarnation of TV, and in fact is often referred to as the first British TV star. Unlike many comedians from that time though, that generation who served in the war or who did national service, people like the Goons, Norman Wisdom and Tony Hancock, he's virtually unknown today. That generational divide I mentioned is quite a precise one. If you were born before 1960, you've probably heard of Richard Hearn and his Mr Pastry character. If you're born after that, you probably haven't. Something in the City, directed by McLean Rogers and starring Richard Hearn, was released in 1950. Hearn plays Mr Ningle, a respectable, if slightly scatty chap in a bowler hat and pinstripe suit, who lives with his also slightly scatty wife, played by Betty Sinclair, his grown-up daughter Beryl, played by Diana Calderwood, and their maid, Nellie, played by Molly Weir. They live in a respectable house, in a respectable street, in a respectable area. Morning, Daddy. Morning, Holly. Mummy, I've got some wonderful news Not for you now, both. darling, you make father late. Well, bye-bye, my dear. If there's anything urgent, ring Sergeant Benson. Yes. I'll call you at lunchtime as usual. Very well, dear. Bye. So reliable is Mr Ningle that the whole household, in fact the whole street, can set their watches by his morning routine as they prepare for his day at work doing something in the city. However, things are not as they seem, for Mr Ningle is living a double life. He does indeed travel into the city every morning, but only to collect his messages from a friendly security guard. He then turns on his heels and goes to a dingy upper room in Soho, where he transforms into his alter ego, Artie the Artist. Yes, this is not a Mr Pastry film per se, but Arthur the Artist is Mr Pastry in all but name, and I'm pretty sure that audiences of the time would have just seen Artie as Mr Pastry in a different hat. In this disguise, Mr Ningle paints, then sells his paintings by the steps of the National Gallery, where he is part of a fiercely loyal network of street hawkers. We soon learn that Mr Ningle lost his job in finance seven years ago, but chose not to worry his family with this information, and has been living in this twilight world ever since. Things begin to unravel for him when his daughter, Beryl, excitedly announces her engagement to Richard, played by Tom Gill. Richard's father, Mr Holly, played by Gary Marsh, is the editor of a Fleet Street newspaper and is a very shouty man, aggressive and bombastic. Mrs Holly is a horrendous nouveau riche snob who is ashamed of having grown up in Wapping, so when their son tells them he's getting married, the Hollies are desperate to find out what sort of family this girl comes from. 
To this end, Mr Shouty Holly assigns one of his reporters, Doddington, played by Bill Shine, to follow Mr Ningle to find out exactly where in the city he works. Doddington is perplexed, however, when he observes Mr Ningle entering a shabby Soho house, so parks himself in the Toucan pub over the road to keep watch. Although back in 1950, the Toucan was a sandwich bar called the Carlisle Restaurant, and in Something in the City, it's staffed by a very young Dora Bryan. Farcical hilarity ensues, including several set-piece slapstick sequences as Mr Ningle attempts to evade detection. Artie is suspected of murdering Mr Ningle, which is very upsetting for all concerned, but, and I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler for everybody, it all works out fine in the end. Something in the City was made at Nettlefold Studios and distributed by Butcher's Film Services. Regular listeners will know that this is probably an indication that the film in question was knocked out pretty quickly on a tight budget, but that doesn't take anything away from its charm. Although it's not exactly a rib tickler, there are certainly chuckles to be had throughout, and Richard Hearn was such a likeable screen presence in all of his films, and I've watched quite a few in preparation for this show, that it's easy to see why he was so popular. Sadly, given the rather bland and lightweight nature of the character and the comedy, it's also easy to see why this character has been largely forgotten. It's all quite good fun, but it's no Buster Keaton, although apparently Hearn and Keaton had something of a mutual admiration society going on and became friends. Everything about this film is efficient and well done, if not exactly inspired. The plot is engaging enough to hold the attention, but if your delivery pizza arrived halfway through, you'd have no qualms about pausing the DVD to tuck in. The locations are lovely to see, particularly the old Carlisle restaurant in Soho, and all of the cast turn in excellent, committed performances. Gary Marsh's tyrannical newspaper editor, Dora Bryan's irritable waitress, Bill Shine's spivvy hack journalist, and Molly Weir's excitable housemaid are all fantastic. But my particular favourite is Betty Sinclair, who I'd never heard of before, who plays the scatterbrained Mrs Ningle, who can never find her specs and accepts her husband's seven-year subterfuge with happy equanimity. The screenplay is by John Pertwee's brother Michael and is witty and efficient. Both the story's originator, H.F. Maltby, and the film's director, McLean Rogers, were old hands by 1950, having racked up nearly 250 film credits between them since the late silent period, and this experience is apparent in the confident handling of the convoluted plot and some of the wackier slapstick sequences. I doubt it would end up on your top 10 film list, but it's well worth a watch with a nice cup of tea and a pastry. Mark Brissenden is a comedy writer and broadcaster. He adapted and wrote the original material for the BBC remakes of Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel, based on the scripts of a lost Marx Brothers radio series, and has made regular appearances on Soho Radio. This is all in addition to his most prestigious gig so far, which was to appear in episode two of Mural Morsels, talking about Groucho Marx and his connection to Soho. The choice of recording location for this one was a no-brainer. It had to be the Toucan Pub on Carlisle Street, which, as mentioned, makes a very prominent appearance in the film in its former incarnation as the Carlisle Restaurant. Our attentive landlord, Colin, was the very definition of hospitable. He turned the music down, brought us some Guinness, and even had a few interesting things to say about that scene shot in his pub. Mark and I felt very well looked after as we settled down with our pints to talk about something in the city. When I brought the film to you, you were vaguely familiar with it. Was that true yeah, to say? It was, it was one of those films where obviously I knew Richard Hearn and I knew he was Mr. Pastry, and he was very, you know, uh, that was his main character. He was a tiny bit before my time, more like, um, but my grandparents, my parents knew of him. I had a vague 
recollection when you mentioned the film back in the 90s and when Channel 4 was on and they would just show all sorts of things in the late after, early afternoons and you know you know, old English Frank Randall movies people that, again Florence Desmond who was basically you know a British um, impressionist uh, of a day so it's either there or maybe I just saw it in my grandma and it's very entertaining it's not I mean it's like it's like what they might call um, a quota quickie in, in those days it's not it's not a high budget thing there even though you got someone like Dora Bryan in it who went on to become you know, you know a lot well a lot more well known probably or remembered than um, Richard Hearn now. It was, you know, almost like some people's like sort of first movies and stuff like that. But I didn't then know that it had been shot in Soho, and that, yeah. uh, you know, at, the, at that in that period when when you came up with the idea and the sort of the connection of it, that's also what sort of dragged me in and that interested me because when you showed me the Carlisle restaurant, and I thought to myself, that's the Toucan, you know, yeah, which, which is where we are now. Um, and we're sitting we're in the Toucan pub, which we'll talk a little bit about that later on, because that's one of the main, lo- that is the Soho yeah. connection. But Richard Hearn, I was surprised when I started looking into it, how big a star he was. It was enormous, wasn't it? And he had very famous friends. I think he's from some, something of a show business background. His, his uh, parents were performers, acrobats, and he was, had an early sort of start in a similar way to someone like Keaton. And that he became sort of an acrobat and worked briefly in circus and then went into West End shows. And you can't imagine West End shows then would be reviews that might run for years and launch the careers of many people. But they're not like West End reviews or shows. You'd have musicals, yes, and you'd have the great plays. But you'd often, you know, you basically have what, you know, sketch shows effectively running there. And variety. Yeah, variety. Well, sometimes the more variety, you might actually have a loose plot line to it but I mean apparently he created this character Mr. Pastry in a show in 1936 called Mr. Big and it also starred uh, a guy called Fred Emney who went on to become another very famous uh, character comedian of the uh, of later era if you've ever seen the the Italian job he's, he's he's one of the he's one of the rugby fans or the football fans who go over and kibosh all the cameras around. oh right that's Fred Emney right <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so why are you maybe not we're so familiar with him now is that his career was largely sort of in theatre and sort of in, in variety and he made movies post-war I think and then which again being sort of wouldn't have been top line movies of, of their day they would have been quoted quickers or second features from, a, from an era when cinema was almost always a double bill they wouldn't have been uh, you know the top line I'm surprised sometimes when I remember something like well hey would be because you you know you see his wonderful films and they're still to these days quite low budget thing. But then you see a still of him, you know, at at a big premiere and you know in a Haymarket and stuff like that. And then you realise what a huge star he was. Yeah, know. Will Hay. I think people still know Will Hay today. Or my, I think maybe I'm just a nerd who knows these sort of things. But I think they know more of him. But it wouldn't surprise me if they really didn't because he didn't sort of make it into the sort of TV genre. Whereas Richard Hearn was, I've seen him described as the first yeah. British TV star. So you're talking about the very early days of British t- TV, well, post-war TV rather. I think, I think he actually appeared in something just, just before. Because it's mainly a children's character that, that he created. And in an era when a lot of, a lot of the stuff from that period either just wasn't re- was broadcast at the time but not recorded and, and also either just sort of lost because a lot of it was it in the 50s, yeah, uh, early 60s. I mean, I seem to recall having a series in 59 and then 61 and I think that's just, I'm, I'm, I'm there, but it's too early for me. 
<laughs> he appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show yeah. in the States. He had a This Is Your Life. Something like the Ed Sullivan Show in the, in the States was not quite like chat shows that you have today. A lot of them would be actual variety acts. And so someone like uh, Hearn with his little five, three, four minute bit where he does a, a complete dance on his own, the Lancers dance. And you, yeah. you imagine the regimental ball and he just, and he just, just him yeah. in his four minutes. And it's That's just, quite a good sketch, that. It's wonderful. Idea. And yeah. so he's tailor-made for, for shows like that. Dance contest. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. Wait, wait. Was... Richard Hearn, what's the matter? What are you grumbling about? Well, look at this. Dance contest. Well, that's perfectly all right. A but dance contest. Well, that's not dancing. Twisting, mambo, cha-cha. And, well, that's and... the youngsters, yes. Well, that's what the dancers, they dance. Edward, it is not dancing. And you do jolly well. It's not, da- it's not the dances we used to do when we were young. Oh, don't you remember about, about 70 years ago? <laughs> Who were Mr... Patriot's equivalents at the time? Did he have contemporaries? Was he a normal wisdom type? Or? Similar, but I guess what he did is, is he was a, someone who's started a career on stage in, in, in theatre before, before television, effectively. In a way, he's sort of precursor, if you like, of some of, of some of the evening films, I suppose, and stuff like that. So they called him sort of the first sort of TV star, and he's mm. kind of a, a sort of a children's uh, character. So I don't really say, I mean, who he's contemporaries or who we, who we'd sort of be compared to because I'd sort of always seen in him sort of more like um, American kind of influence. I was going to say, is he kind of like the British equivalent of Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd or... I mean, I see a lot of um, Keaton there and also the stars. I mean, when, when Milligan and Sellers and uh, uh, people like that came along, they were heavily influenced by... because they'd had such a strong American influence in this country in terms of film particularly during the war and then post-war. And Keaton, at that point, is long past his Hollywood heyday. I mean, he was literally washed up in the, uh, by the early 50s. But then he started to sort of make something of a comeback. And when Hearn got to know him, Richard Hearn got to know him, then Keaton is appearing on stage, has gone back to, literally to what's left of Variety or Vaudeville, and he's doing a stage version of Merton of the Movies, which is a very early sort of, uh, silent film. So... Keaton then came over in the 50s to tour the halls, much like Laurel and Hardy, because it was work because they were washed up in, in films. And, it, you know, it's, it's amazing to think of somebody like Buster Keaton being washed up, you know. <laughs> and so he recorded a pilot with Mr. Pastry and Buster Keaton in, in the 57, 58, I think it was, with the idea for making a, a series probably more of an adult thing, because there were various guises of Mr. Pastry in, other, in shows, mainly children entertainment sort of shows and um but apparently you know i haven't seen it for some time but the pilot's very good but they just didn't make a series of it and is, is richard Hearn playing a mr pastry yeah. type and no, he's mr pastry oh he is he's actually mr pastry. the series was going to be called the adventures of mr pastry and, okay. and in the pilot um keaton is playing a professor Hearn just looks like it absolutely you know adores uh, keaton and is trying all the all the slapstick that's in the the movies is just to me inspired by that by that ear, and I, and I looked at some of it, and I thought, I wondered if Hearn would have preferred to have been a silent comedian, because yeah. because some of his stuff in the, in the you see in the film where he's the whole routine with the grandfather clock he's running home with, and then when he loses his oil paintings and thing, it's always lots of oh, no, 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 no. What happened was is I, I dropped it in here, yeah. and I dropped, and then suddenly wait a minute. But you could see that far more as a silent, you know, uh, yeah. scenario. You can really see his theatrical acrobatic background in those. He's so physically adept. There's that clip when he, in the Ed Sullivan show, where he does the the Lancers dance 
And then at the end, there's a little gag where Sullivan comes on and bends over and picks something imaginary up. The and Hearn comes and does a, a backflip right over him, flips right over him. He's, he's in his late 40s, early 50s. Yeah. And that is just sort of pure acrobat stuff like that. And yeah, and you look at Keaton in his prime, and he is, you know, they are muscled and well toned human beings. And can land from yeah. standing <laughs> to arse on the ground. Really hard, and it's, they didn't need to hurt them at all. Yeah, but you have to realize it was extremely well d- disciplined and ex- well rehearsed as well as those. You know, they, they, these things, when you sort of see them, they, they weren't completely sort of knockabout. They were really kind of rehearsed. Lots of the slapstick really makes me laugh. There's a, there's a gag with the clock where he's trying to get... It's like, you know, the way dogs have a wide stick and they can't get through a gate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's trying to do that with a clock through the doorway, and he can't... And then Gary Marsh tries to get underneath it, and he bangs his head on the clock as he comes it's in. also must be inspired by the... There's one where Laurel and Hardy wind up buying a, a grandfather clock. Yes. Is it by mistake in an auction house? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's and the it, rent money, you know. Yeah. He gave it to me, you gave it yeah, to him. Yeah. yeah. I can never remember that. No, no, no I can't remember those. I'll, I'll slot it in, post-production, yeah. here. The title of the Laurel and Hardy film that Mark has temporarily forgotten there is Thicker Than Water from 1935. That's Thicker Than Water. From 1935. Back to the show. Of course, that's what it's called, yeah. So he's obviously the star of Something in the City. It's not just a vehicle for him. I think lots of performances are really good. I was really taken with Betty Sinclair, who plays his wife. Have you come across her before? I thought she might be a a well-known comedian because she's, she's got this gag where she can't find the specs and she's put them in the teapot, which really made me laugh. I don't know why, because it's a not a very funny joke, really. I didn't know so much. I mean, the, the standouts for me were Molly Weir, who I knew, from, and Dora Bryan. Yeah. I saw her at, um, at a big C&D rally. In the she, she fell Dora Bryan? Yeah, she fell in with this Families for Defence uh, League, like the Olga Maitland lot. And, oh, uh, right. And uh, took to sort of haranguing. Uh, doing oh, so she's anti-CND? Yeah, she's oh, doing, right. doing speeches through the megaphone in Trafalgar Square at the, at the CND rallies and stuff like that. You know, they, they would turn up to uh, harangue <laughs> us. I think they were called Families for Defence or something. Yeah, like Lady Olga Maitland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she was one of that crowd. That's very disappointing. Um, <laughs> so Dora Bryan's little turn is the scene that takes place here, where we are, in the Toucan. Yeah. Cup of coffee, miss, please. Tea. No coffee. Tea. What? Oh, rhino. Tea. No sugar. Sugar's in already. Oh, all right, I like sugar. And I like the door shut. It's hard to see the... It's called the Carlisle Restaurant, isn't it? The, the yeah, tea bar. which was a real place. Yeah. I thought when I watched the film initially that those interior scenes of the cafe, the Carlisle Cafe, must have been shot in the studio. But I got into Colin, who's... Um, our host here, those interior scenes, you think it was shot actually in the two cars? I think it would have been probably too difficult to have actually recreated that sequence where it keeps running out the door and standing on the pavement. So it it seems to me that that was definitely shot uh, at the the location. Um, Right. I obviously wasn't there, so I couldn't prove it, but it just seems that the whole interior layout of that was definitely as it as it was. But you were alive when the film was made, just I was about. Alive, yeah, just about. Yeah, not quite one, but uh, yeah. but the, the other side of the road, the other side of Carlisle Street, isn't the other side of Carlisle Street in real life. No, I think that's Darbley Street, and uh, uh, so you can see that's still there, the, the um, doorway and the railings in Darbley Street, just by the burger bar that's there now. 
Um, but when you look at, uh, it goes further along the street and it disappears down an alleyway into Gould's Builders Merchants. It's still there as a, as a business, but it's on the opposite side of the road to what it used to be. Okay. Even though they shot it in Soho, but then at the end, when, the, when he's been exposed, he said he set himself up as an East End art dealer. No. Did you say East End? No, I, just yeah. to be, I thought you said West End. Oh, so whether that's they, weird, isn't it? Because they changed that. Because the location is so yeah. clearly seen as, yeah. as the, you know, Carlisle Street and the Carlisle Restaurant. It could be just something. So this is what it means. You sort of pour over these things 50 years after they're made, and they could have just been, he could have just said East End instead of West End by mistake, and nobody picked it up. I did notice a, a little gaffe, actually, which was the whole thing about him getting his clock for 20 years service. But then he says to somebody at the station, yes, I, I've been at the firm for 25 years. And I thought, is that Mr. Pastry or Mr. Ningle making a mistake? Because <laughs> he just got his lines wrong and they didn't retake yeah. it. Because you see, this is what I mean, like you said about the quota quickest and stuff, that's probably why they're shooting it a lot on location. It's certainly sort of cheaper, yeah, and they, they probably didn't stop an awful lot but it's also films are often made in the edit yeah this is why you can have you know shot of carlisle street and then cut to a shot of 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 mid street and pretending it's opposite the one so a lot of the continuity often happen in the edit as well yeah and colin as a slightly older gentleman than mark yeah you do remember Mr. Pastry then as being a person, a famous person. It was part of my growing up. I, I would, I would imagine that I, we didn't have a TV, so I doubt that I saw him on TV. But he was sort of larger than life. I mean, so if you went to a pantomime at Christmas, it would be a Mr. Pastry pantomime. So he was, uh, you know, he was, uh, and he was a draw. He was on TV in the early part of the mid-50s, I would imagine, and maybe up until the late 50s, but after that, I think he sort of disappeared from the TV. I keep getting surprised at how big a star he was, but... Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's surprised that, in, that he just disappeared, but then you mention any of these names now to, to people sort of like, you know, you know, in their 30s and 40s, they haven't got a clue what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, so. absolutely. So they have disappeared completely, yeah. Yeah, very sad. This your... Guys, get your beers upstairs, it'll be fine. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Did you notice a star of 70s kids' TV <laughs> in, the, in the film? Well, most, yeah, definitely, yes. I mean, it was, she was seen to be one of those sort of ubiquitous sort of character actors. That just, this is Molly Weir. Yeah, Molly Weir. Who plays Nelly in the film <laughs> and played Hazel McWitch in mm. rent ghost Cheers, Colin, that's our, our second um, pint has arrived. Because he used to, uh, was it Mr. Mumford was also the character in rent ghost Mr. Mumford, yeah, and Timothy Claypole. Whatever, because I know the actor who, is, well, his name is, used to drink in the BBC club. <laughs> and Molly would sometimes be there. Yeah, you know, when I first started to sort of work sort of BBC Light and Radio and stuff, I'd go over to the BBC bar afterwards, and there would be all these people that you'd see you know, from children's television, but they were members of the BBC drama rep now or stuff like that. And you, and you suddenly go... That's Mr. Mumford over there. You know. <laughs> but you then, it's then when you sort of realise, oh, my God, they're just jobbing actors. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're. and Molly as well, she did a whole series of, um, I can't remember this Flash, I think it was Flash, because she did, you know, um, Flash adverts yeah. for years. 70s, 80s. Yeah. Your mother's away, is she? Oh, Mrs. M, she'll be back from Grants any time, and look at the mess, and I'm Oh, Jenny, you're wasting time using washing powder on the floor. All those suds. You'd be forever mopping them up. Well, what then? A good bucket of flash. But I think she goes back even before, because I remember seeing her being interviewed in the old Paris studios about working in the Paris studios during the war. 
you know, with Doc Morris Denham and stuff in Itmar and stuff like that. It's amazing, though, that the stuff that we saw, my children's TV watching was all in the 70s, really, early 80s, I suppose. And people like, you see Max Wall on the telly quite a yeah. lot and, <laughs> and Molly Weir in rent a Ghost and people like that. And it turns out, now that they're all long gone, that they were huge stars in their day. And I had, I had no notion at the time. I kind of wished that when I was 10, I wish I'd known that Max Wall had been a massive star in the 30s and 40s and Molly Weir yeah. had had this long, long career, you know. That's marvellous! Oh, yes. Flash cleans quicker than you can see Jack Robinson. You mentioned Quota Quickies, and it's not... I don't think it's technically a Quota Quickie. It has a bit more of a budget than the original Quota Quickies in the 30s. But the, the pedigree of lots of the people on this film... That all comes from the Quota Quickie era. You know, McLean Rogers, who directed it, I think he directed 90 films in a 30-year yeah, yeah. career. Quota Quickie is sometimes a bit of a misnomer because they would also be known as second features. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with a second feature. It could be perfectly well-budgeted. And I love, what, love looking at these films. And they're, the films, and they're like, it's an hour and 13 minutes long. And yeah. you think, that's long enough for a feature film. You know, <laughs> it would be a perfectly good one, but you would often go to the movies and see a double bill. Mm. But this, the Quota Cookie films, they had to well, what make it, and exhibit a certain number. Well, what it was, again, you see, it was, it, it was the American studios that were coming over, and there was a lot of American films, you know, the big films and stars of the day, that day was Errol Flynn, and it was something, something to do with the um, screening uh, cinemas and stuff like that. They, a certain percentage of movies shown in cinemas had to be British movies or largely British funded. You know, the one of the ways of getting around this, of course, was making a cheap, quickie movie, like I say, a quota quickie, and then showing it with your... No, no, nobody is coming to see the quota quickie. They're coming to see Captain Blood. Yeah. You know, and that, but, but, so that's, my, that's a basic, my basic understanding. Of and it. there's this idea that they used to show them, just play them to empty cinemas when the cleaners were picking up the popcorn and stuff. And uh, No idea of that. But, I mean, like I said, more than likely, they might just show them as a... Like maybe like a second feature or something. Yeah, like that. there's McLean Rogers, H.F. Maltby, who wrote it. He's he's got a massive <laughs> list of credits and IMDb for Quoted Quickies, and it does have that. You do get the impression that not that it feels like a very cheaply made film, but that people who made it worked in an efficient manner yeah. and knocked it out relatively quickly. That's not to say that it's a low quality film. I do, I do think it does have. It feels like quite a high quality film to me, and nice performances and everybody. Everybody's an old hand, you know, yeah. back on screen and behind the camera. Well, you, at, you know, look at the cameras. You've still, you know, you've still got your cinematographers and you've still got the numbers after them. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, chain production, you know, production line. McLean Rogers, this appears to be a remake of a film that he made in 1937 called The Strange Adventures of Mr. Smith, which is a similar kind of thing where Mr. Smith, as opposed to Mr. Ningle, goes off, puts, it on, puts on his bowler hat and goes off and be comes an artist during the day. I don't. I think it's a lost film, and I've only read right. like a two-line summary. Yeah. I mean, it's wonderful that so many have survived it. Then we have this thing, thing, because the amount of times when you just see a movie and it's just got somebody that you know in it, and you've never heard of that movie, and you just Google and you think, "Oh, look, it's on YouTube." You know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes some of the quality could obviously varies from thing to thing, but you know, it's always it's great with. Uh, Renowned people that are actually because I mean, stuff that these films that Richard Hearn certainly deserves to be widely you know, seen again and, and enjoyed. Well, this is what Renown and Dr. Yeah. Bitch are doing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. They've Originally, I heard about it because I was in this very pub and somebody said, oh, there's a, there's a film shot here, something in the city. And I wrote it down and Googled it and came across it. And the only place I managed to find it was on this DVD box set 
produced by Talking Pictures or produced by Renown, who are, to, who are basically Talking Pictures. Do you think, do you think I, well, I noticed in some of it there was, there was other, whether well, I wanted to check with you whether I'm right, I sort of seemed to spot other locations. And I swore blind that when he, there was a scene in something of the city where he loses his, he's, he's walking along and he loses um, his oil paintings into a car. Hilarity ensues as he tries to break into somebody's car to get his own paintings back. But when they start up the chase, I'm sure that's shot down by Charing Cross Library. Yeah, it's basically between is it the Wyndham's Theatre yeah. or the is that is, it's from there up towards St Martin's Lane. It's that section. Yeah, because I'm sure that when he when he's walking away with his pictures again and the police spot him again, I'm sure that's just not just on the alleyway. Flick, yeah. Flicker Alley, or they used to call it. Flicker Alley? Yeah, there's between St. Martin's and Charing Cross, one of those roads, you know, with the bookshops on it. Oh, yeah. That's where a lot of the early in British film industry was situated. Okay. And it became known as Flicker Alley. Because, and there's actually, I think there's a plaque on the wall that says, formerly known as Flicker Alley. Because a lot of very early, um, you know, going right back to early late 1890s, early 1900s, where the early British industry was, film industry was based. Oh, right. I wonder if they had an office there and just sort of nipped out and made sure there's no police around and said, <laughs> quick, do the scene now. The equivalent of later on in the 60s and the 70s would be something like Roger Corman making his quota quickies and, you know, and he'd like, you know, made a movie called Targets. It was Peter Bogdanovich's first movie and it's about a, an assassin in a drive-in movie. But it's got Boris Karloff in it who plays this old Hollywood movie star of the day who's... Going, and it's his movie that's being shown in the drive-in kind of thing. And he's in it because he owed Roger Corman three days shooting. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so Corman just cuts him into this movie because he, you know, he, they finished filming and Carlo owed him three days filming. So he managed to cut him into this movie as an aging film star. So I'm sure it's probably you know, similar. If you'd like to see something in the city, it's available on a DVD box set called The Mr. Pastry Collection, released by Renowned Films. I've included a link to this on the show notes, and many thanks to Mark Brissenden for giving up his afternoon to come on the show to talk about it. Information about Mark, David, Augustus John, Richard Hearn, and his alter ego, Mr. Pastry, can all be found on the show notes too, and that address is sohobitespodcast.com. If you'd like to spread a little happiness in the world, you can do that by leaving us a nice review and a star rating at ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites. You can, of course, tweet us with your comments and suggestions on at Bites Soho or email us at SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bites produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jingham Young. See you soon and bye for now.